0: There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite our heart to fear your name. God, I pray today that as we end this series on relationships, that you would do what the psalmist prayed, even pleaded, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we come today into your house, singing with your people, having the word of God, your word in front of us, and our hearts are bifurcated, divided there, there are little pockets of rebellion and treason against you. And we need you, by your Spirit, to unite our heart to fear your name. This moment, we, we take all of the other things in our life and we, we put them aside. And for the next few moments, we just want to sit and learn from you by your word. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is to make a divided heart singular again, to hear and open hearts that are hardened and filled with all manner of desires and make one desire preeminent, a desire to love Jesus. And so we pray you would do this today. We are a needy people with so many pockets in our hearts. So unite them, we pray, Jesus. For your name, for your glory, amen. Over the last number of weeks, we've looked at a number of uh, truths as it relates to relationships and how to be able to use the scriptures, God's word, discovering how we can have relationships that are God-glorifying, Jesus-exalting, and Spirit-empowered. We've seen the following truths. We've learned that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We've learned that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. We've discovered that resolving conflicts quickly is really important. Otherwise, you're going to give the devil an opportunity. And then last week, we learned that God wants to use our mouth in a way that honors him. The call is to speak redemptively. This has been a wonderful journey for us over the last month. It's been wonderful personally, and I trust for you as well. I I sense, as I've heard from a number of you, that the series has a bit has been a bit like surgery. You know you need it and it's helpful, but man it hurts. And some of you are like, yeah, like without anesthetic, that's how much it hurts, man. And that's been true, but the reality is we we all need that. And I want to encourage you to keep growing and use this um, series not as an end, but rather as a beginning. To continually ask yourself, how can I continually grow in what it means to make my relationships fit? with the person and work of christ and how can i give evidence that i'm a different person as a staff there's a couple of things that we want to do to try and help you in that maybe take a couple next steps the first thing is, is that beginning on september the 6th next week sunday we'll be offering a big group class an abf on the book the peacemaker and so if you want to take the next step and figure out kind of okay what do i do next that would be a great class for you to take there's only about 85 spots in that room you could register online even a kiosk out there this morning and we just want to offer that to you as a help to go a little bit deeper the second thing is you might be in a small group and you're sensing that man this subject of relationships and how to be able to really make our relationships more fit with the glory of christ is something we really need and maybe you'd like to continue on for a couple more weeks in discussion and so our small group team is going to put together four additional discussion guides that your small group could continue on this theme if there's a need just to keep probing the depths a bit And the final one, this would be a prayer point, is that I hope, quote-unquote hope, to be able to put these sermons in some form of a written copy, some kind of e-book or something of that sort, so we'll be able to um, have something that we can go back to and refer. I I don't want to lose the lessons that I learned, and so I think some time given to develop that a little bit further would be helpful. So our goal is to have that available by the end of September, and you can pray with us about that. Now next week, we're going to jump back into our series on Matthew called Get Real, and we're going to be in the subject of judging, you know, that favorite text of your aunt, right? Uh, don't judge lest you be judged, right? So we're going to, sorry about the southern drawl with that, I just couldn't resist, but, um, <clears throat> but that verse is so often quoted by people, don't judge lest you be judged, and we're going to talk about what is, what is judging really all about. But today, we're going to wrap up this series and talk about the subject of covetousness or discontentment. After the service, I had a little girl come up to me, and with a little whispered tone, she said, What are you so upset about? <laughs> and her dad came over, Oh, honey, he, he's just passionate. He's just passionate. So the, the, the reality is, I'm not upset, uh, but I am very passionate about this subject. And the reason is, is I have seen relationships, I've seen marriages, I've seen people just go down a path of covetousness that destroys relationships. It eats it like a cancer from the inside out. And and this morning, I want to try and help you understand why covetousness, a lack of contentment, can, can really have an enormous amount of damage in your most precious and important relationships. In the book of Ephesians, where we are, the book begins, uh, chapter 5 rather, begins with a call to be an imitator of God. And what Paul is addressing here is this need to be wholly discontent. You see, the problem with our covetousness and our contentment, our discontentment, is that we are often content with things that we should be discontent with. And we're discontent with the things with which we should be content. That's our problem. we got it just backwards. And we got to reset and, and remind ourselves what we need to be content with and what we need to be discontent with. Uh, for example, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. There's this idea that he's discontent with his present spiritual life. And then in Philippians 4, verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's content in his circumstances, but he's discontent in his spiritual growth. Well, the reality is, many times, we're discontent with our circumstances, and we're content with our spiritual growth. And what Paul is calling these believers to is a, a new level of spiritual growth, a holy discontentment, if you will. Ephesians 5 verse 5 is our main passage, but it begins really in chapter 5 and verse 1. Look at it. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Ephesians 5 begins with a call for spiritual growth and maturity. And that call began all the way back in chapter 4 verse 22, where he talked about putting on the new man or the new self, this idea that you've been transformed by the person and work of Jesus, you've received him as your savior you're now a new person the old is gone the new has come and therefore there needs to be a, a new level of life that's flowing from you and the characteristic pattern of that life first is in chapter 5 verse 1 you're an imitator of god he calls you to be an imitator of god be like god be righteous be holy verse 2 we're called to walk in love to demonstrate how much we love god by loving one another verse 3 Not only are we doing things that are supposed to be God-centered, but notice how it relates to our relationships with others. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. So he calls them to take immorality and impurity and covetousness seriously. And then verse 4, very specifically about relationships, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. So, in other words, Paul is calling them as a group of believers to be discontent with the right things, to be discontent about how much they are an imitator of God, to be discontent about how much they walk in love, to be discontent about the sinful things in their life. In other words, holy discontentment means that you're intolerant of spiritual stagnation while you're content with who you are in Jesus. So the key is to understanding what we are to be content in and what we are to be discontent in. Verse 5 is the turn. Paul makes his point with almost like an exclamation mark. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then little parenthetical thought, that is an idolater, remember that, we'll, we'll come back to that, so if you may want to underline that, circle that, or just note that in your notes, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So, what is he saying here? He's saying that the problem with sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness is the fact that they are too easily tolerated. That we're content With immorality, we're content with impurity, we're content with our covetousness, and Paul wants us to see that in particular covetousness is a very serious sin, putting it on the level of sexual immorality and impurity, even indicating that if a person is characterized over the scope of their life by covetousness, they do not have an inheritance in Christ. In other words, there are going to be thousands of people in hell because... Their covetous hearts revealed that Christ was only a name, not the Lord. It is dangerous to your soul to be content with covetousness. And today we're going to see why. So covetousness is a familiar sin, and it is far more dangerous than what we realize. And I want to help you today to get a grip on this thing And to help you do that, I want to give you three reasons why covetousness is dangerous and to call you to no longer be content with covetousness. First thing is this. The reason why covetousness is dangerous is because it always wants more. By definition, to be covetous means a desire for more. In Ephesians chapter 5, the word translated as covetous means to be eager to have, to be eager to have more, or the yearning for what belongs to others. So essentially, covetousness is a desire for anything that you don't have, or more of what you already have. It's this desire for more. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's just whatever you don't have. Ten Commandments. The final of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet. Listen to what God says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So that means that covetousness is directed towards something you don't have in anything. You can be covetous over anything. You could add, instead of your neighbor's male servant or his female servant, you could put this. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's John Deere, his Lexus, his green grass, his absent of uh, crabgrass, his, the way his children behave. You, you, anything, you put anything on that list. In the New Testament, Jesus particularly focuses on material possessions. Luke 12:15, And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Here's the problem with covetousness. It is that we begin to believe in our hearts and live as though our life is really lived. Real living exists on a John Deere tractor. You're like, oh, this is heaven, right? And you have no idea how silly and puny God's gifts like a John Deere tractor are compared to the reality of what you have in Him. See, covetousness is taking the gift, not that a John Deere tractor is bad. Like, why are you on John Deere tractors? I don't know. Just woke up this morning with that on my head. Sorry. So it's not as though those things are bad. What happens is those good things that God gives, the gifts, suddenly begin to grab a hold of our hearts as we begin to think, ah, this is real living. Or I could really be happy if I could really be satisfied. I'd really enjoy life if. And those ifs, ifs, ifs create this longing for more and more and more the problem with covetousness is it doesn't stop. It always wants more. Well, the opposite of covetousness is what? Contentment. And the Scriptures call us to embrace a mindset and a lifestyle that reflects our control, spiritual control, over this desire for more. Jesus um, gives us through Hebrews 13.5 this word, From the writer, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember that verse because we'll come back to it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So covetousness is then this desire for more and more things. And what you'll find and what you already know is that once more isn't enough. Just one more, just one more, just one more. And you perpetually live in a life where you always want just one more. The newest technology, the the newest features on a vehicle, the the, the next job, the new promotion, the bigger fame, the the more income, the bigger stock pick. Just more and more and more. And you know it just doesn't ever stop. And, And maturity in Christ is realizing that There comes a point in time when you just have to say, look, my contentment is in Christ, not in what I have. Spiritual maturity is recognizing that there's a danger in always wanting more. Spiritually immature people don't understand the danger of covetousness. In a similar way, children don't understand. I mean, your house has to be like mine. My kids ask, Dad, can I have a cookie? This happened yesterday. Can I have a cookie? Sure. Two? No, one, right? So there's this perpetual angling for more and more. And if I said 2 they there'd be, I for three. It would, it would never, it would never stop. A couple of years ago, I was uh, taking our kids to an amusement park and, uh, made one of the, the, really the dumbest decisions of my life. And that was I agreed to go on a ride called the twirl a whirl. You know what that is? Yeah, it's double the terror. What it is. It's this, it was this little, um, cup like thing, and it had the steering wheel in the middle that some luniac... or oh. Lunatic maniac is a combination word. There um, decided that it'd be fun to have a ride that kids can control how much you go around the circle. And so you put this cup on this bigger sphere, and then while they, they turn the sphere around, your little cup spins. So you're you're spinning in a big way and then in a small way. And and I got on that ride. My kids like, Dad, can we go on this ride? I'm like, sure, 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 I can handle it. And I got on that ride, and something apparently happened when I turned 30, and I, I just something happened in my brain, and I can't tolerate that kind of movement anymore. And, and I and I discovered. This on the ride. So as we're, as we're as we're going around the first twirl on the whirl, I knew I was in trouble. I mean, we had barely even started. We're going like this, and I'm like, oh, whoa, this is not good. And so then we start moving around faster and faster, and I can see my wife um, as I'm coming around the, the, the corner, and she has this really concerned look on her face as I'm I'm looking at her, and as I'm coming around, she's like, Mark, are you okay? I'm like, oh, and she's like, you're looking kind of green, and I'm going around around. And I, and I'm just holding on for dear life, cause I'm thinking, I am not going to throw up on this ride. I'm not gonna do it. I mean, can you imagine the kids coming off the ride? They're like, oh, that guy, you guys threw up, here, you know? Not gonna do that. I get off the ride, the ride stops, I'm making a beeline for the nearest restroom that I can find, cause I feel like I am gonna hurl. Can you say hurl in church? I don't know, I just did. So, um, so I run to the, run to the bathroom, and the, the twins are like, oh, dad is so sick, and our youngest son is like, hey, can we do that again? Right? It's, it's no clue that, no, it's over. You know, It's over. It's done. No more. No more. And from a spiritual perspective, some of you are like young children. In your spiritual maturity, you need to wake up to the reality of saying, no more. We've got to stop. It's got to end. This desire for more and more, you, you will never stop wanting more. And that's the problem with covetousness. The second problem is it's a worship problem. Back to that passage in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's really interesting that the writer of Hebrews puts that in there. It's really important. And it's the reason why covetousness is so devastating. Here's why. Because the opposite of covetousness is living in the reality of knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us. In other words, there's a connection between contentment and worship. And there's a a, a, a connection between discontentment and covetousness and, are you ready, idolatry. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 and verse 5 says, Who is covetous? That is, an idolater. Paul is intentional with that thought. What he does is he links covetousness to idolatry showing us that at the core of what covetousness is all about is misdirected worship. There's a clear connection between our relationship with God and our desire for more. How so? Here's how. Covetousness is connected to worship in that it places security, joy, and satisfaction in something other than God. It's a worship problem that expresses itself through a desire. It means that these objects of worship, they demand more of me because I believe they're going to give me something. Now with God, that's a great thing, because God wants us to be gloriously, wonderfully attracted and addicted to Him. But with other things like money and possessions and popularity and status and attractiveness and power, it becomes a terrible sin because the problem isn't just the desire. The problem is that these things take over. They control us. They become functional gods that we worship by our relentless desire for more. So covetousness is a problem because it always wants more. Secondly, because it's a worship problem. Third, because it is a belief problem. A belief problem. Here's as close as I can come to a definition that captures this. Covetousness is a belief problem, meaning that I believe when I'm covetous that what I need and what I want when I'm given it will really make me happy. So therefore, here's how I would define it. Covetousness is believing that what I have in and through God is not as satisfying as what I could have in and through something else. So it means that my relationship with God and what I have presently and what I have through Him isn't as satisfying to me as what I could have if I just had this. If I just had, if, if my spouse was just like this one, or if my kids were just like this one, or if I just had that car or this house or this career, then I would really be happy. And instead of living in the reality of who I am in and through Christ and what He has given to me, this belief that somehow I would be happier if I had more is at the root of all covetousness. Which is why Piper defines covetousness as this, desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. That's the problem. You lose your contentment in God, so you start to seek it somewhere else. And it betrays God by believing that there's something more satisfying than who God is or what He has supplied. So the question is, is God sufficient or not? Will He meet your needs or not? Is He truly satisfying? Can you really be happy in Him? Can you really live without that thing that you want? And the answer is supposed to be yes. But for many of us, it is, no, I can't. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary says this, it does not matter what it is, anything that you and I tend to set up as the big thing, the central thing in our lives, the thing about which we think and dream, the thing that engages our imagination, the thing we live for, the thing that gives us the biggest thrill, if it is anything other than God, it is idolatry. Can you see why covetousness is so serious? Why Paul links it to idolatry in Ephesians 5.5 and Colossians 3.5? Covetousness is a devastating sin and it relates to our relationship with God. It is a It's an attempt to run my life, that my expectations, my desires, my wants become preeminent over God. Covetousness is an end run around God where I want to be my own God. I don't have an altar in my home. No, I just have desires that I'm willing to do anything to meet. And that is why covetousness is so serious. Now, I've not said anything about relationships yet. And the reason that I've done this is because you will never understand how discontentment affects relationships until you understand what's at the core or the heart of the issue as it relates to God. Covetousness is similar to pride in that it is sneaky and silent and deadly and subtle. It's often in the background and it begins with how you view God. But there are real effects of covetousness On relationships let me give you four the first one is that covetousness will drain your soul mark 4 verse 19 it says but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word Jesus is talking there about the parable of the sower, about the seed that falls in the ground, and these things, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, they enter in and they take the word and they choke its influence. How does that relate to covetousness? How does that relate to relationships? Well, relationships were designed by God, and I hope that you've learned through this series, they only work when we do them God's way. And a relationship with others is foundational built upon, rather, a relationship with God. As I've said it before, you cannot be God's kind of partner or parent unless you are God's kind of person. You have to be God's kind of person to be ready for a significant relationship with somebody else. You have to be God's kind of person to know how to deal with hard people, how to pursue reconciliation. So those of you who are single and you just long to be able to have someone in your life, don't you dare go after somebody who's got a God-sized hole in their heart that they're trying to have you fill. That will be a miserable relationship. And don't you dare go after somebody who has no relationship with God. They're not even a believer just because they're attractive and they make you feel well. That person is out of bounds. Why? Because they're not on the same soul track that you're on. Because at the heart of all relationships is a soul piece. And if your soul isn't right, you will never be a right person in that relationship. Marriage doesn't make you better. It only accentuates your faults. <laughs> it does. As I say to couples all the time, you will never know how selfish you are until you get married. <laughs> it drains the soul. Two halves do not make a whole. So covetousness chokes out the influence of God in your life. And there's a direct connection between the life of your soul and covetousness when things and stuff and money and promotion and a host of other things compete for our hearts, when they usurp God and erode the foundation of everything, what will happen is that covetousness will drain the soul. You will lose your sensitivity to God and others. You will no longer want to hear what God says because things have begun to consume you. It will affect your priorities. The first thought in the morning when you wake up is not, boy, I can't wait to spend some time with the Lord. Can't wait to spend time in His Word. Instead, your covetousness will suddenly be more concerned about, I've got to check my email so I can be sure I'm ahead of the curve when I get into work. i got to go work out so I can have this body that everyone can look at and think well of. i got to check my stocks to see how my financial portfolio is. i got to update my Facebook status so that my friends will know what I'm doing. Because after all, everyone needs to know what I'm doing. Working on my covetous heart this morning by Facebooking. (laughs) Sinning by not spending time in God's Word. (laughs) Secondly, the problem with covetousness in relationships is this. It's never satisfied. When I was a kid, I used to watch mosquitoes land on my arm and would do something when that mosquito would land and get into a vein and squeezed as hard as i could in a couple instances i squeezed so hard that the mosquito couldn't stop the inflow of blood you ever done that before and you're watching you watch this little belly getting bigger and bigger and bigger And every once in a while that little stinker would take off I'd be like hey come here you know give me my blood back every once in a while i hold that thing so long it kept flowing and flowing and flowing all of a sudden to pop the thing just blew up right on my it was really cool when i was a kid right Well, Proverbs 30.15 says this, The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. Like this blood-sucking thing that just cries, Give, 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 give. That's the idea. An infusion of more and more and more that never stops. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The danger here is that you can live your life with a constant orientation towards always wanting more. Some of you are in a marriage like that. Your husband or your wife, they just always want more. Maybe you got a good friend, somebody in your small group, somebody you hang out with, and every time you're with them, every it's, there's always something new. They're always just dissatisfied with the way that they are. They're always longing for the new thing. And you wonder in the back of your mind, man, when will you ever be happy? And the answer is, they won't. A number of years ago, I read a book by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a great book on the fear of man and codependency. He said this, marriage has been a privilege and a blessing to me. It has also been the context for a surprising discovery. I found that being okay in Christ was not enough for me. When I was first married, I knew that Jesus loved me, but I also wanted my new wife to be absolutely forever smitten with me. I needed love from her. I could handle small amounts of rejection from other people, but I felt paralyzed if I didn't have the love I needed from her. If she didn't think I was a great husband, I would be crushed, and as you might guess, a little angry. This led to a second awakening. I suddenly realized that I mutated into a walking love tank, a person who was empty on the inside and looking for a person to fill me. My bride was indeed gifted in being able to love, but no one could have possibly filled me. I think I was a love tank with a leak. Since those days, I've spoken with hundreds of people who end up at the same place. They're fairly sure that God loves them, but they also want or need love from other people, or at least they need something from other people. And as a result, they're in bondage, controlled by others, and feeling empty. Some of you need to hear that. The reason why you're so miserable on the inside is not because of some external insecurity or some self-esteem problem. Your problem is idolatry. You want to be liked and loved, and it's not sufficient that God loves you and likes you and cherishes you, and what you have in Christ is not sufficient. No, you'd rather have the affection of a friend or the kindness and the love of a spouse Or have your kids think that you're a good parent. They are controlled by whoever or whatever they believe can give them what they think they need. It is true. What or who you need will control you. What that little girl sensed when she said, why are you so upset? is the urgency that I feel with that last statement. What or who you need will control you. I believe there are hundreds of people who will be in this building whose lives are controlled by things that could have been good and have now become wrong because your covetous heart has said, just one more, just one more, just one more, and it never stops. Covetousness destroys relationships because it's never satisfied. And it's not just about money or stuff. It can relate to anything that you want. It's devastating to live with someone or try and have a relationship with someone who's never satisfied. They jump from job to job, city to city. Some of you have changed churches. Or friends, or cars, or hairstyles, or clothes. Or lovers. Because you're always looking for something more. And the problem is, in your relentless pursuit for more, you have destroyed everything that's around you, and you still want one more. Covetousness is a treadmill that doesn't stop. The stop button on the treadmill is broken. And you have to say, enough, I repent, I get off. Covetousness destroys relationship because it's never satisfied. The third reason is because covetousness is at the core of conflict. James 4.2 What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war with you? You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So covetous people frequently have conflicts because their desire for what they want runs into collision with other people who hinder what they want. And so they find anger in insulting words or pouting attitudes or manipulative means. They have to get what they want and they're filled, their life is filled with conflict. And James says that the reason for these fights and quarrels is because of a hindered desire or an unrealized covetousness. The bottom line is we want what we want and we're willing to do just about anything to get it. And the real problem is covetousness. So we want to be liked. We become resentful or bitter when we're forgotten or overlooked. We want to be popular so we get angry when, or hurt when we're not on the guest list. We want to be respected so we exaggerate or look down on others to make ourselves look better. We want people to think we're good parents. And so it's embarrassing when our kids mess up. Before I was a senior pastor, I was a youth pastor, and I I told myself, I am not going to be one of those parents. You know, the kind of parent that when you would tell them something about their kids, would immediately be defensive like you were making some comment about them. And before you knew it, the conversation had flipped to what you as a youth pastor were doing that had created their sinful actions of the kids. And I was always like, how did this conversation become about me? This was about your kids, and suddenly now there's a weird thing. And I, I told myself, I'm never going to do that. And then I had kids. Hmm. And uh, I remember one time Sarah came back from the nursery, had our twin boys um, in her arms and a little moist on her eyes. And I said, what's the matter? And our kids had little marks on their cheeks. I was like, what's, what, are, what are those things? And she's like, we got a bad report from the nursery today. I said, what happened? She so said, our kids are biting other kids. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, they're running out going, you know, like gnawing on kids. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, I have all these feelings like bad kids, but not bad kids, like bad parents. And immediately my heart runs to, well, what's going on in that nursery? And aren't they in control of those kids in there? And what do those other kids do to deserve to be bitten by our kids? You know, I'm thinking, you know what? You know, I got all these things running through. And the reality is, is what's down there, what's down there is this desire. I want people to think I'm like a plus parent. And therefore you say something about my kids. It's not just about them, it's about me. And if you're not careful, you'll be a devastating parent because you never address the issues in your kids' lives because you're always concerned about what it says about you. You see, covetousness is dangerous because it is this desire for more. The problem is in what we desire. And if you're not careful, covetousness will kill relationships. Here's the final one. It gives rise to more sins. 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So here's the deal. Covetousness never stays static. It never remains on its own. It it plunges people into ruin and destruction. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your covetousness has led you today into bondage. You are stuck And when you look back at the trajectory of your life, the reason that you are stuck is because you wanted something more. You wanted the corner office, more money, a bigger house, a fancy car, a better body, a man who would understand you, a woman who would meet your needs, a drug that would make you feel better. And you have seen the devastation of wanting more and more and more. You were willing to leverage so many things, spend so much money, give up relationship with your kids, jettison the purity of your marriage, and throw to the wind the name of Christ, because you wanted more, and your penchant for more now has become a bitter cup that you have to drink. Some of you are underwater in your house, and your mortgage payment. And the reason is, is because you wanted the American dream, and what you bought was a covetous smokescreen. Some of you are so racked with debt, and you think the problem is our budgeting, the problem is money. The problem is if you had more money, you'd be in worse shape. Because now you've got the power to fund even more covetousness. One day you'll wake up and say, what was I thinking, my hope, my prayer, is that that would happen today. Is that you would just say, what am I doing? Why does this matter? What is the big deal? Who do I think I am? Why am I doing this? And my guess is there's some people in your life who would be praying that that would that exact thing would take place in your soul. You see, discontentment and covetousness are dangerous to relationships. Trying to love someone with a leaking love tank is exhausting. It's like trying to fill a swimming pool with one glass of water at a time. So the solution to covetousness is not complicated, friends. Very simply, conquering covetousness comes by a sufficient Savior. The the bottom line is, the advice of Hebrews 13 is spot on. Be content because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What that means is this, is that having Jesus means you have everything. The problem is, is that many of us don't know how to live in the reality of the beauty of that. And what covetousness does is it surfaces the shallowness of our relationship with Christ. Because honestly, if we could choose between a new iPhone and a great time with the Lord, some of us wouldn't know exactly what we would choose. And how you'd know that is because what happened the the last time you got in a piece of new technology. It took over. Got a new car, you all waxing and buffing it and everything else. Got a new job and... Polishing the nameplate on the door. Or you live it vicariously through your kids. I mean, they got to be the athlete that you never were. So you spend all sorts of money, all sorts of pressure, hoping that they'll make it to the NBA. (laughs) And everyone knows, including your kids, it's not going to happen. But this environment that you put them in is killing them. And it's killing you. Because your desire is so strong. Paul said this, Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, notice this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I... For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, that depends on faith, that I may know him. This is what I'm praying will happen, is that some of you today would see that covetousness is the tip of the iceberg. The real problem is you don't know him. That you would say, that I would know you and the power of your resurrection and may share in your sufferings. Yes, even. If you take it away, that's okay, because I want you. And what you will find is when he takes it away, he is far more satisfying than anything you ever thought you wanted. Which is why Paul said, not that I'm speaking in need or have learned For I have learned in whatever situation I am can be be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. College Park, I want us to learn how to be discontent with our discontentment. I want you to covet for freedom from covetousness. I want us to be so satisfied in God that our relationships do not become a vain attempt to fill God-sized holes in our hearts with toothpick-sized solutions. I yearn for you to see and understand what Augustine said, that... God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. For some of you, I want to call you home today to the bosom of Christ where you will finally find contentment. But before you find contentment, you have to say, I'm getting off this treadmill of covetousness enough already. It means that some of you covetousness... Maybe opening your eyes to the reality of your need to receive Christ. That you realize that satisfaction has not come in relationships and money and power and and there's got to be something else. And there is. It's Jesus. You will never be satisfied with anything unless God is satisfied with you and you are satisfied in God. God. Through Jesus. Listen to me, you will kill relationships. You will, you will, you will suck the life out of people unless you can learn to be able to say, My joy, Jesus, comes from you, and out of the overflow of my satisfaction in you, I'm able to pour into other people's lives because you're satisfied with me and I'm satisfied with you, that becomes the ground of good relationships. So Father, I pray that you would have an army of satisfied people. Lord, that you take our divided hearts and unite them into one singular passion would take our the various caveats of our lives and unite them in a single desire for you Lord forgive us for misplaced worship thank you for helping us to see that it, just, it isn't going to stop Lord I pray today that you might even just awaken someone's heart to the reality of their need turn from covetousness and to turn to Jesus. There's no God like you, O God. No one does the things that you do. So unite our hearts, we pray, to fear your name. We ask this in Jesus' name.